Welcome to the Natural Health Rising podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Smith, Certified Functional Diagnostic Nutrition Practitioner. I'm here to deliver you weekly episodes where you will hear conversations with health experts and solo episodes about functional medicine and all things holistic health. My goal is to provide you with the knowledge and tools you need in order to help you rise to your healthiest, happiest self. So in this episode, you're going to hear my conversation between myself and Hamid Jabbar. Hamid has spent the better part of his adult life exploring Eastern philosophical and practical systems of Western medicine, yoga, Ayurveda, Buddhism, Thai body work, Japanese energy work, Amazonian plant medicines, and other traditional healing methods. Prior to his 15 years of working in the healing arts, Hamid was a successful lawyer in Los Angeles before moving to Arizona to reconnect with himself and his true passion of helping others. When not advising clients on their health and educating on many expansive topics on health, Hamid focuses his work on the use of sound and plant medicines in meditation, yoga, and transcendental experience. Hamid is the voice behind at Mineral Shaman on Instagram, which is a platform discussing the intersection of mineral balancing, plant medicines, spirituality, and ancestral wisdom. Welcome, Hamid. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because I always love talking to you. I feel like I feel like you have some really unique opinions on a lot of different things from nutrition to minerals and plant medicines. Let's go ahead and start with your story a little bit, maybe from when you went from that transition to being a lawyer into all of the amazing work that you do today. Well, that takes us back in time a bit. I'm 41 and I became a lawyer when I was 25. Mm -hmm. And that was seven years of continuous schooling from college through law school. And then I spent two years as a lawyer working seven days a week, 10 hours a day. And I remember towards the end of that, I somehow ended up with the Saturday off. You know, I wasn't working. And I remember waking up thinking, wait, what do people do when you have a Saturday off? It was such a weird feeling. And I think at that point, that was my wake up call that something had totally gone wrong because I remember enjoying time off. And I had gotten to the point where I didn't know what to do with my time off. I also was experiencing issues with my body, mainly flexibility issues. I couldn't touch my toes and things like that. And I had a couple of herniated discs in my neck that I got right around that time. And so I dove into meditation and yoga as ways to really just connect with my body. That brought me to Arizona from Los Angeles. And then being out here in Arizona, it just, it reminded me that there's more than just sitting behind a desk. <laughs> and well, maybe just preface this, but before I became a lawyer, I was a musician and I was in music school. So I, I really started to think about the direction my life had taken. And I had always been interested in alternative health. And just for my own purposes, I never thought I would share any of that with other people. So around 2007, 2008, I really dove into alternative healing for my own body coming out of being a lawyer and working with yoga meditation to really expand my sense of who I am. And by 2012, I was teaching yoga and meditation. And I had a couple of years of transition, basically, where I was still practicing law, but I was a part-time yoga teacher and working with people privately. And it wasn't until 2014 that I finally left the practice of law completely and just dove into group and one-on-one -on -one work with people. And since then, it's just been integrating all kinds of things. The thing is, for me, I'm like super curious about everything. So I don't just focus on one aspect. I'm always diving into something else. And so I just continue to complicate matters by <laughs> trying to put all the pieces together. Do you mind talking about your journey with plant medicine a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I had been teaching meditation and working with sound meditation for a few years and helping to expand that. At the, at the time that I was introduced to plant medicines, I was already fairly well known as a, I guess you, the term is sound healer or meditation guide, you know, and I was guiding people into journeys with sound. And I had people coming to my sound events that were talking about plant medicines. I had been aware of ayahuasca for at least 10 years. When this documentary about DMT came out in like 2004, 2005 called DMT, the spirit molecule, it sparked my interest, but I was never into 
anything like that. I was always very like meditation, yoga. I never was into drugs or experimenting. I just, I felt like my body was a temple. I didn't want to, to abuse it or do something harmful. So when it was presented to me, the opportunities coming from people who I saw as actually very healthy and well-adapted people, it had a different take for me. And I dove into working with ayahuasca first and then wachuma, which is another plant. Spent a lot of time in the jungle and in the Andes Mountains, where these medicines are from, and really trying to understand the interplay. The fascinating thing about plant medicines is they kind of combine everything that I was interested in before. They combine sound, because most of the ceremonies work with music and sound as ways to open and to heal. And then they combine aspects of diet and aspects of herbal medicine, which I have been interested in. And then of course, like the meditative consciousness expanding aspects appealed to me. And so that was kind of my introduction. And I spent at least two, three years just really deep diving into those medicines and lately, in the last couple of years, I've been trying to go even deeper with them to understand how they work with the minerals in our body and some other things that are just unknown about. But that's kind of where I've landed now. We'll definitely get into the mineral stuff for sure. But before we go there, I mean, how can people, and we're not telling anyone to go do this stuff, but like, how can people use those kinds of things? Like what are the benefits of going down that path of using something like ayahuasca or machuma or any of that? If you're ready for it, if people are ready for it, they can be incredible allies to resolving deep, deep emotional um, issues. Now traumas are one thing, but sometimes we just have blockages around certain emotions. They really help us to learn to utilize the emotions for our benefit. In certain contexts, they can be allies in healing physical conditions, but a lot of that does play into the emotions because the body is always reflecting our emotional state. And if we have blockages around the emotions, freeing those blockages often helps resolve the physical issues. And so I, I look at them as like really powerful allies. And then the other aspect to me is that we lack direct connection with ceremonial experiences in the West. You know, our culture has been largely secularized and people don't connect with community and get together and sing and get together and experience ecstatic states very often. And I believe that, you know, plant medicines are just one way to do that, but they are a powerful way to really open the heart into reconnecting to sort of indigenous um, wisdom around what is what it means to be a full human. And so I think a lot of people are craving that in the West because we just don't have it. Yeah. Now we're all just heads down on our phone, on social media, <laughs> not connected at all. So who would these plant medicines be for maybe, and who would they not be for? These medicines are really for people who are very healthy already, and they can be allies if you're not in a state of health, and that's mental health, physical health, these medicines can, can eventually help, but they require such a commitment that I don't think most people have the, the wherewithal to go through that process. They can open up a healing process that could take many, many years for people. It's like opening up a can of worms. And I think mm -hmm. people have the mystique like, oh, I have some depression, anxiety, I have some childhood issues, I'll just go to some ayahuasca ceremonies and I'll get it done within a week. And then I'll come back and I'll be healed. And that's not the reality. The reality is you go and you do that kind of thing. And then you're going to spend the next three to five years trying to, to unravel everything that you opened. And that can be really destabilizing. And so I am now really recommend people consider that before they dive in, because once you dive in, it may not be something you can stuff back in the, the bottle <laughs> and, and then you're, you're committed to it. But if you're already fairly well um, along in the healing journey, you've done a lot of things outside of plant medicines, you know, therapy, meditation, yoga, and this is just like the next step, that can be something that I would say people would be ready for it. And physical health, uh, be in a good state of physical health. What if someone did accidentally open the bottle and they weren't ready? Like, would the next step for them to be, like you just said, doing more meditation, more yoga, like those kind of therapy, like kind of hand in hand with that experience that they just had? Is that the integration piece? Yeah, there's now a whole field of integration that's developing because of this phenomenon. 
Okay. So ther- therapists who are trained in helping people to work through the, the things that were uncovered. And, and so it could be, it doesn't look the same for every person, but it could be working with a therapist afterwards that helps to integrate that experience. For some people, the natural inclination is to keep going back to more ceremonies. And to me, that is the sign that we're not well integrating the experiences if we need to do that. And yeah, so this is a big piece of the puzzle that I think has been ignored. People think integration is like the meeting the morning after ceremony where everybody sits around and tells about that's not integration. Integration is what you do in your life. And it could take months or years and, and it could be major life changes because a lot of the times people go into these things, they already know on a subconscious level that there's things in their life that they don't like and they want to change it. But they might think that by experiencing the plant medicines, they're going to come to a new understanding and, and, and learn to love it more. And what ends up happening is they realize, no, now they can, can't even tolerate those things. So they became even more sensitive to them. And then they're faced with the proposition of what they're going to do. Are they going to really upset their life by ending a relationship, moving, things like that? And that part needs to be really considered um, properly and not acted upon rashly, like after ceremonies. And so the integration piece, yeah, therapy, meditation, these types of things. Well, let's get down to like the more biochemical stuff. So since you've been talking a lot and researching a lot about the mineral aspect of it, what's going on there? How are the plant medicines impacting our minerals? It's a big, big topic (laughs) and they're all a bit different and there's a lot of nuances here. Okay. Um, I'll say that. I'm just going to speak to a couple of plant medicines just to keep it really focused. Well, I would, I would say some big ones right now, which you might bring up is like mushrooms, right. And whatever else, I think that's, that's one I would be curious on and then whatever else you want to share. Okay. Mushrooms, which not to offend the mushrooms, we're not going to call them plants because they're, they're fungus, Yes, but (laughs) they fall into this category. So what we know about the active component of mushrooms is psilocybin. It's a molecule that that works with the serotonin receptors, at least one aspect of how it works, which is the 5-HT receptors, which we have throughout our body. And we have most of them in our gut, believe it or not. 90% of the serotonin receptors are in the gut and they control the peristaltic contraction of the digestive tract. And then the other 10% or so are sort of throughout the brain and the the other nervous tissue. Uh, Psilocybin is one of several molecules that we know needs magnesium to work. It, It actually works with intracellular magnesium and calcium. And that's one of the ways that it works is it causes the balance of magnesium and calcium to shift um, inside and outside of the cells. It also then causes um, changes to serotonin, dopamine, and the other neurotransmitters. So on a mineral level, we're dealing with a substance that's going to throw off homeostasis. That's by design. I mean, our homeostasis may put, we may be in a place where we just don't like it. So then we're, we're seeking to have our homeostasis thrown off, but there's, there's at least one good study on this, that psilocybin, it burns through magnesium. And as a result, we'll, will burn through calcium and, and the other um, electrolytes. The dangers come when people are severely magnesium deficient because it can cause strokes. This isn't widely talked about because I think a lot of people are unaware of this phenomenon, but I've spoken to people who have had things come up working with plant medicines, not just psilocybin, where there's numbness in certain areas of the body that develops, which is a, it can be a sign that there was a, a tiny transient ischemic attack, a a tiny stroke somewhere that's undetectable by um, most doctors wouldn't be able to determine that that's what happened because it won't show up if it's in a small capillary. So this is a danger. It's not a common thing, but we do know that by working with psilocybin, people will be depleting their minerals. Now, magnesium is the first to go, but when you lose magnesium, you end up depleting other minerals and then throwing off the balance and other minerals because magnesium is sort of the glue that holds everything together. So that's the main mineral issue. Then there's 
aspects of diet because it, it seems to me that there's very few practices that intertwine, you know, taking a medicine and diet so closely as like working with plant medicines. And there's a lot of dogma in the plant medicine world around diet. And most of the people that I see go into working with plant medicines end up adopting very restrictive diets, whether they restrict fat or they restrict animal products or they restrict salt. In many ways, it's the diets that surround these practices that are more damaging because you get them take a medicine that's depleting you of minerals, then you have a diet that's further depleting. And the consequences of this are really big because people come to these medicines thinking it's going to help their, their mental health or their mood or things like that. And then they don't realize that what's happening is their body's becoming less and less able to endogenously make dopamine and the other neurotransmitters that would keep them happy. So they can become more dependent on continuing working with plant medicines. And then you see a whole industry developing around microdosing to kind of keep people's mood elevated because... Well, there's something wrong, in my opinion. If your mood isn't elevated, we need to fix it. We don't need to just keep taking the same thing that's probably contributing to that. This is a, another issue. Well, you said there was a couple nuances. Did you want to speak on other plants first and like okay, whatever good. those nuances were? Good. Yes. So the classical psychedelics, um, psilocybin mushrooms, mescaline, which is in the Wachuma cactus and peyote, these work very similarly as far as magnesium goes. The, the newer drugs, um, let's say call them drugs because they're not plant medicines that are being used are ketamine and MDMA. These are synthetics. They do the same thing, except probably worse um, because uh, they have multiple modes of action. So they're not working with the serotonin receptors. They're working with lots of different neurotransmitters. And those are incredibly depleting. Anybody that's done MDMA, even recreationally, they'll know that there's, not, there's something wrong afterwards. It's not a good feeling. On a mineral level, we know that these are burning through magnesium in, in very high rates. They're probably doing more than that. And so those are the nuanced drugs that I think those are becoming more common because they're being legalized for use in therapy. The plant medicine that is probably more popular, I guess, in, in these days is ayahuasca. And ayahuasca is so complicated in its modes of action. It's very, very complex medicine. It is incredibly depleting of our minerals, probably one of the ones that leads to longer term issues for people. It's the one that I see people go to ceremonies with and they end up not being able to figure out what's going on afterwards. It can lead to lots of gut issues uh, that, that last for a long time. I mean, some people will go to ceremonies and then their gut is never the same. They're, they're never able to, to get it back. There's a lot of gaslighting in the communities just because I think the indigenous people don't experience these things because of their mineral status is very different than ours. Diet is very different. And so when a Westerners experience these things, they think, well, it must be, you know, the Westerner uh, did something wrong. It can't be the medicine. Um, but the fact is, it's just our bodies are different. So they're going to respond differently. So those are some of the nuances, but there's, there's a lot more that we're learning every day. Yeah, that's all super interesting. Can you just very briefly, maybe on like a basic level, explain what is the importance of minerals in general, like in the body? I feel like a lot yeah. of people don't under understand like that very basic level of how important they actually are. Your body is made up of substance and that substance is minerals. <laughs> so anything that our body is made out of, it's, it's synthesized from minerals, you know, whether proteins or enzymes or hormones. So I, I like to just remind people that if minerals are not just good to have, that's all you are actually. <laughs> you're, you're minerals plus water. But I'll just take one angle because this is the angle that I think has the most significant consequences for people and they're unaware of, which is our, our red blood cells. And our red blood cells, they don't have mitochondria in them. They're very unique in that respect. And they're designed to be flexible. Each little red blood cell looks like kind of like a donut, but the hole isn't all the way through. They're designed to bend because they have to get into the tight little capillary areas and, and kind of go through. What makes them flexible is magnesium. And there's a measure of this called MAG-RBC, which you can get on labs. It's the red blood cell magnesium. That's the test that I use for people. And the doctors are taught, no matter what school they go to, that red blood cells live 120 days. But the reality is, 
they only live 120 days if your mag RBC is at 6.5. Now, most labs will tell you you're healthy if you have it as low as three. And when I run labs for people, I've never seen somebody with 6.5. Most people are going to have red blood cells that don't live 120 days because they don't have enough magnesium. What ends up happening then is that a little flag goes up when it's ready to be recycled. And then a macrophage will eat that red blood cell and it'll go to the spleen. The spleen has to send it to the liver. And then these iron carrying proteins have to take the iron from the dead red blood cell and put that through tiny holes in your bones into the bone marrow where your bone marrow has to make new red blood cells. So this is part of what's called the endoreticular, the reticular endothelial system, the iron recycling system. It's the most complex system in our body. It relies on enzymes that doctors don't even know exist because they're not taught about this. And what ends up happening in our society is that they've been putting iron into our food since the 1930s and 40s. So we have a lot of iron and our red blood cells are not being recycled efficiently. So what happens, just imagine that I Love Lucy episode, probably from before you were a kid, but they played the reruns when I was a kid and Ethel and I Love Lucy, they're on the chocolate factory floor and they're supposed to like grab the chocolate as it's coming out the conveyor belt and put it in a little paper and they're doing good. And then the guy's like, speed it up. And then more chocolate starts coming and they can't. <laughs> and they're stuffing the chocolate in their mouth and in their shirts. <laughs> this is what happens to us is that when our magnesium falls, our iron recycling system starts going really fast and we can't keep up with that. So what ends up happening is iron, instead of making it through the recycling system, starts to leak out, go all over the body, into our tissues, into every little area. And when iron ends up in all these other areas, it causes oxidative stress and it causes inflammation and it causes disease, symptoms of disease. And this all is happening on the mineral level. Um, this started with the magnesium deficiency. But the other thing that contributes to it is copper, which has to be uh, there to manage the iron and, you know, certain other nutrients like retinol, which these things are sort of absent. Like I mentioned, the diets can be very restrictive working with plant medicines. And a lot of that is eliminating retinol sources from the diet. And so without the proper mineral balance, we end up with minerals in places that they shouldn't be. And uh, ultimately we end up with symptoms. You know, XYZ disease is usually a symptom of mineral dysregulation. So whatever the, the disease is. Can you talk a little bit more about um, copper? Because I know we've kind of talked about this a little bit before, but people say there's copper toxicity, but then we have a whole nother camp of, no, we don't have enough copper and it's not bioavailable. So just talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So we have enzymes, which are called multi-copper oxidases. Any enzyme in your body that ends with ACE, like oxidase or oxygenase, is a copper-dependent enzyme. And enzymes grab onto copper, and that makes the enzyme functional. The most important one of these is something called ferroxidase. And its job is to take iron that is this ferrous iron, highly reactive, plus two iron, and it has to convert it into the non-reactive ferric iron, plus three. Um, the enzyme that does that is called peroxidase, but the peroxidase enzyme function can be done by a number of different enzymes. One of them is ceruloplasmin, and then there's a few others. But in order for them to do that job, there has to be copper in that peroxidase enzyme. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It doesn't mean that the enzyme's not there. It'll show on a lab test. But without copper in the enzyme, iron is not able to be managed and iron gets out of whack. The other, the implication here is that in all the multi-copper oxidases, if there's no copper there, we cannot manage oxygen. oxygen. That's what oxidase is. It's a way of managing oxygen because oxygen is, when it interacts with iron, causes rust and causes reactive oxygen species. So copper is very important in the right places. Now, this is a semantic game that's been played. It's the same with iron, which is that they say, well, you're copper toxic. Well, anybody that's showing copper in the blood or in areas that it shouldn't be, you know, you could say they're copper toxic. The way that I look at it is they're copper deficient because that copper is leaking out of the places where they need to be. So it's a semantic thing. It's not that we're talking in different terms, but I think most practitioners that use the term copper toxic are just unaware 
of the certain enzymes that we need it to be in and how the copper gets into there. And it's very challenging to get copper into those enzymes. You can't just take copper. And I think that's the other issue. It's like, I, I say you're copper deficient. People think, well, I'll just take some copper. That's not going to do it. Um, the copper has to be properly loaded in those enzymes with cofactors. And, and so it's, it's not such an easy thing. You know, I think when we say high, low or deficient and not, it, it kind of gets confusing because it, it's like, where are we deficient? Are we deficient here? Or, you know, if we're deficient there, we're probably high in other places. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the issue. But the, the main thing is that for the last hundred years, copper has gone from the soil. It's not in our food anymore. And iron has gone up because the soil is acidic. And without copper, we cannot manage iron. And the secret key to getting copper into the multi-copper oxidases is something called retinol. And in the 1950s, because of Dwight Eisenhower having a heart attack, the president of the United States, people had no idea what a heart attack was because heart attacks were so rare back then that nobody had them and nobody knew anybody that had ever had one. They were able to convince the American population that heart attacks were caused by dietary fat and cholesterol. And so they took out sources of retinol that had been ancestral foods for a long time, such as butter, heavy cream, um, liver, these things that our great grandparents ate. Um, and then they replaced everything with seed oils, margarines, soy oils, canola oils. And all those oils are not real fats and they don't have any retinol. And in fact, they're kind of damaging because when seed oil, the PUFAs in there interact with iron, which isn't being managed, you get all kinds of problems. So there's been this one-two punch by putting lots of iron in the food, the copper is depleted from the soil, and they took retinol out of the diet. So it's really those three things that have led to just so many problems with us. And these are mineral issues, essentially. What should people do nutritionally and may maybe supplement wise to start to rebalance these things? Is it eating butter and liver or is there more to it than that? The first thing is to stop doing all the things that are destroying copper. <laughs> That's my first step. I'm also practical. You know, if, if I can't get people to stop all the things, then sure. Adding sources of retinol and adding sources of copper, whole food sources are going to be good. So liver, you know, grass-fed beef liver has got copper and retinol. That's kind of nice. You know, adding butter, if it's grass-fed, you know, it's going to get some retinol, egg yolks, anything yellow. Mm -hmm. The yellow color is from the retinol. You know, they sell butter now that's completely white. You don't want that butter. You want the yellow butter, the way butter used to be. I have to tell you about my favorite company to order all of my pasture-raised, grass-fed meats from. It's called U.S. Wellness Meats, and their farms are committed to sustainable, humane farming practices, which actually benefit our environment, unlike conventional farming practices. So I get a lot of people telling me that they cut out meat to be healthier, but I actually recommend the complete opposite. It's not meat in general that's unhealthy. It's the type and the quality of the meat that has the power to be inflammatory or anti-inflammatory and loaded with healthy nutrients. Due to modern farming practices, conventional meats have about two to three times higher levels of inflammatory omega-6 fats and two to three times lower anti-inflammatory omega-3 fats. Now, omega-6 fats are not problematic in themselves, but the ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s in conventional meats is undesirable and actually causes inflammation. So consuming pasture-raised, grass-fed meats are actually the opposite. They have a more balanced ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s, more conjugated linoleic acid, and this makes them more anti-inflammatory in nature. My favorite thing to order from this company is actually a blend where they take 75% beef and 25% organ meats. I know it sounds crazy, but it's actually delicious. You can't taste the organ meats and you are basically taking one of nature's best vitamins because organ meats have just about every single nutrient you need to thrive. So head to the link in the show notes and go check out all of their high quality products and you can thank me later.
but I do work with a protocol that's called the root cause protocol, and it's a very specific way of doing this. So for people who are more apt to just follow a protocol, that protocol is, is incredibly beneficial for people, and it's free to download. There are practitioners like me that help people if they need help, but a lot of people just do it on their own, and I did it on my own before I became a practitioner. Can you share like a couple pieces of knowledge from that? The protocol is, is set up with a series of stops, like I said. So stop taking supplements. Um, and there are certain supplements that are incredibly damaging to copper. And then it's a series of starts. And the starts are very simple and easy. One is adding trace mineral drops to water. Trace mineral drops have magnesium in it. And then it's starting something called the adrenal cocktails. And adrenal cocktails are basically salt and potassium and some whole food source vitamin C, usually with orange juice. And there's lots of recipes out there. And the key there is that if we start taking magnesium, because we are, everyone's magnesium deficient, despite what they think. (laughs) If you start taking magnesium, the first thing that's going to happen is your body is going to get rid of sodium and potassium. That can cause stress to the adrenals because the adrenals uh, sitting on top of the kidneys are there to sort of regulate our salt balance in in our serum. So just running out and taking magnesium often can lead people to becoming more magnesium deficient if they're not supporting the adrenals, which is why the combination of this, the drops, the trace mineral drops and the adrenal cocktails are step one. And usually we just tell people start doing that, see how you feel. And that's a way of just slowly getting magnesium in the body and increasing the function of the adrenals, which a lot of people's adrenals are are incredibly fatigued because of just constant drip of stress hormones from them. And then from there, once people kind of acclimate, we start them on some different sources of magnesium and some whole food sources of copper Mm. and retinol. It's set up in sort of like sequential order where people go until they feel good. And then when they feel good, they add one more thing. And when they feel good there, they add another thing. And it's interesting because you can pretty much get off all of your other supplements and people think, oh, you know, I don't like, you know, it's so many new supplements. I'm like, yeah, but I'm getting rid of that whole cabinet of supplements that you already had. And most of the things that I add are whole foods. So it's, there's very few supplement supplements that people take. One is chelated magnesium, like magnesium malate. But everything else is pretty much whole food. There's a few other minerals we take that are supplement form. I think that's some good information, especially for people kind of starting with adrenal cocktails, mineral drops, um, and just even understanding the importance of, of paying attention to these things. And I think a lot of people will just go out and supplement with all, all sorts of things. They hear, oh, zinc is good for the immune system. Let me take a bunch of zinc, which then can mess with your copper levels or, oh, magnesium. Let me take a bunch of magnesium, which you're saying is going to mess with your potassium and sodium. Right. So I think it's important for people to just be aware, to be careful with what they're doing on their own. If they're just randomly reading an article or hearing something and going out and just taking a bunch of stuff. That's the best advice I I could give to people. Don't just listen and go take out, take whatever you heard. The person said, yeah. 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 Even take this podcast with a grain of salt. (laughs) What actually, what if someone, what's your thoughts on someone who has low iron levels and then they're going and supplementing with iron? Yeah. This is one of those semantic things because what they'll measure doctors will say you're low in iron. They're usually measuring ferritin, which is an iron carrying protein, which actually has no iron in it. The way that it's measured in the United States, they're just measuring the protein itself. And ferritin, if it's in our blood, it means that the, the iron that was in that protein was deposited somewhere and the protein ended up back in the blood, which is a sign that actually you've got iron everywhere. It's just not in the blood. In the old days, they would measure iron by hemoglobin, which is probably a more accurate measure of iron in the blood. But this is the semantic issue, which is that people that are quote unquote low in iron or they'll be told they're anemic, they're actually iron toxic in all the other areas. It's just that the iron isn't in the blood. And what people got to understand is that our bodies can detox all kinds of metals. Our body knows how to get rid of mercury, lead. It, It has ways of doing that, but our body has no way of getting rid of iron. And this is one of the most complex things that if any kind of indication that there's a matrix, here it is, which is that they've been putting iron in our food 
and yet we're still low in iron. That can't be true because the only way you get rid of iron is by bleeding, essentially. Now, we're not bleeding enough to get rid of all the iron that's accumulated, which tells me that what's really happening when people are quote unquote low in iron is that the iron is not being recycled properly. And so it's ending up in their tissues instead of ending up in their blood. And the reason it's ending up there is because the peroxidase enzyme, which is, I mentioned ceruloplasmin is the other name for it, doesn't have copper in it. And without copper in it, you cannot recycle iron. And so the way I talk about it and the way we talk about it in the root cause protocol is that people that are iron deficient in the blood, they're actually really just copper deficient in the enzyme. And the solution isn't to give them more iron because I don't, I don't know if they teach this in medical school, but it, it's just nonsensical. Remember all those steps I said that it takes to get your blood recycled. So if you take oral iron, the doctor thinks that somehow that metal you just took is going to magically go through all those steps and end up being made into red blood cells overnight. That's not how it works. Um, it's not possible. That iron, only thing it did was tell your body you've been poisoned and your body releases more red blood cells that it had in reserve because it thought it was poison. So then all of a sudden you look like, oh, I have iron now. But that was just because you gave yourself a toxin. Um, the better solution is to work the root cause protocol, which is what I work, and get increased copper and into the right places. And then people get off their iron supplements. And I do this all day long. You know, I, I, I have a person, the first person I ever worked with, who was sort of my project when I was in training for this, she had been on iron for like 20 years. She was deathly afraid to stop taking iron because she's anemic. But going to the root cause protocol, she got off her iron and I talked to her last week. She's like, I haven't taken iron in over a year. And she has forgotten that all the symptoms she had back then, she's like, well, you know, I feel okay. I'm like, yeah, but you don't have this. You know, she's like, oh yeah, I forgot I had all that stuff. People mm -hmm. forgot, you know, she feels so good that um, she's like at a whole nother level of normal and not taking iron. And I'm like, you know, see, now you can kind of deconstruct where you ended up, which is that you never needed iron in the first place. You just needed copper and retinol in your diet. Mm. And so this is complex. And I don't recommend people just stop taking what their doctor's telling them to do, but, but reach out to me or some other root cause protocol practitioner if you're interested in understanding the copper dynamic because you can get off iron supplements very easily. There's maybe one person in the United States that I've been aware of who's actually iron deficient and she was bleeding for like six or seven years continuously. That might be the only case of true iron deficient anemia. Otherwise, most people are not truly deficient. It's just not in the right places. It needs to be managed. Yeah. And once people gain access to that iron and kind of rebalance their bodies, do you think that people should maybe not women who are menstruating, but women who aren't menstruating and men to give blood annually and things like that to continuously help cycle through things? Absolutely. Actually, the Red Cross has good statistics that blood donors live longer and are, are healthier. Mm -hmm. Even for menstruating women, I recommend twice a year. It's not a big enough blood loss to during menstruation to trigger something called erythropoietin, EPO. EPO is the, the hormone that all the doping scandals are about in like the Tour de France. And it's released by the kidneys. And what it does is it tells your bone marrow to make more red blood cells. And so like all the cyclists want this because that's the best way to have endurance is having more red blood cells. Mm -hmm. But if you're the only way to trigger your body to make that EPO release is by a rapid, sudden blood loss. And it has to be a significant amount. So when you give blood, let's say you go to the Red Cross and you donate, you're going to give 500 milliliters, so like half a liter. It's a pretty significant blood loss. And your body is going to be like, whoa, okay. And you're going to have that EPO release. And that's going to kickstart that iron recycling system. The body's then going to go look for iron in places that it's stored. Could be in your eyes and you could be in your lungs or in your joints. And it's going to pull that iron and make red blood cells out of it. And so the more you kind of get that system moving and drawing iron out, um, the symptoms that people deal with start to go away. So I would okay. recommend it even for menstruating women and for men, 
usually once a quarter. And some people like me, like when I, my iron recycling system is so efficient now that my hemoglobin is just going up and up, but I can give blood more often. So I've been going every eight weeks and in giving and just monitoring because I do labs, just monitoring, you know, I don't want to deplete myself, but I have so much stored up iron that it's kind of nice. It's my body's just like, okay, yep, here it is. Get rid of it. Make some more. So I feel really good. A lot of people feel really good after a blood donation too. They feel lighter. Their nervous system is going to be calmer because all of a sudden um, 250 milligrams of iron, which causes stress in the body is just offloaded. Are you just checking like a CBC all the time or like what specific testing to make sure that you're not depleting yourself? We do labs that we call it the full Monty. So it, it has all the iron panel. It has, it has every iron marker that's available right now, which is mm-hmm. ferritin, TIBC, transferrin, serum iron, hemoglobin, um, and a few others. And then it also has the copper, the ceruloplasmin, the zinc, the vitamin D, the vitamin A. Those are the labs that I primarily run. But the, the number one way that you can tell whether your iron is recycling is usually your hemoglobin now, because actually when you give blood, they'll prick your finger and they'll tell you your hemoglobin levels. Now for women, you probably want to be around 13. I don't know the exact number, but you know, like for me, mine have been as high as 16 and 17, which is really high. That's a lot of iron. You know, my blood looks black. That's, that's how rich it is. And they love it at the Red Cross because they're like, yeah, that's good blood. We'll take Mm. it. But if my hemoglobin is that high, it tells me that my recycling system is working really well and I can afford to give blood more often. Um, So I start to monitor that when it starts to get down to lower levels. The other thing that will drop usually when you give blood is ferritin. And when ferritin starts to get into the right zone, then you'll know that you can kind of level off your blood donations and just go as as recommended like twice a year, but my ferritin has not dropped low enough yet. So I monitor that. You talked about how you got into everything with sound healing. And I know that's still a really big part of what you do. So, um, we haven't talked about sound healing on the podcast yet. So can you just explain what is sound healing? Cause I've, I've personally had some really profound experiences through it. So I'd love to have you share. Well, sound healing is kind of a broad term these days. I don't actually use that term, but let's go with it. It's sort of the use of instruments that are designed to take people into transcendental states. This is the scenario. Let's say you go to a quote unquote sound healing or a sound bath is another term. You're going to lay down. There's going to be a practitioner that has all kinds of weird things like a gong or big bowls, singing bowls, or they might have chimes, or they might have flutes or drums, or I play these other instruments called a harmonium. And what they're going to do is they're going to guide you just into a state of relaxation where you close your eyes and you let go of your body. And then they're going to play a lot of different sounds that help take the mind into altered states. Now, those altered states are not like you're not going to be tripping, (laughs) you know, like you're on a psychedelic, but it's an altered state, usually somewhere between waking and sleeping. And in those states, the body's self-healing system comes online. So your parasympathetic nervous system starts to be activated. Digestion starts to improve. Like just during that one hour, one and a half hour period, a lot of repair processes happen. So the body goes through this really healing experience. Now, same time, you're now experiencing sound and time and the, the experience of consciousness in a very beneficial way that allows you to oftentimes process emotions or see things differently. So get insights. And the experience can be really hard to describe. You know, a lot of people have these experiences going to a sound healing and they're like, what just happened? Like, I don't even have a framework for understanding that. And so in many ways, it is similar to going to like a plant medicine type thing, but it doesn't work with the mineral. It doesn't mess up your minerals. It's healthy. You can drive afterwards. There's a lot of benefits there. So Sound healing is kind of this overall term that describes these types of practices. And then there's all kinds of like um, subsets where you get people working one-on-one or different types of sound healing. Some of them are more shamanic in nature. Some of them are more yoga oriented. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's aspects to these instruments that are more complicated to describe, which is that the reason they play these weird instruments isn't just for the wow factor that they look cool. 
it's that these instruments, they oftentimes produce a lot of audible overtones or harmonics. And you can think of those as like medicine for the mind because our consciousness responds really well to rich harmonic sounds. There, it's sort of like what we're craving and what has been taken out of the diet of sound that we've been fed by music. Most of the music we listen to on a daily basis, it has no audible harmonic overtones in it. And it's almost like we're eating junk food all the time. Then you go there and you're getting like, oh, okay, this was real sound for a moment. It's like a nourishment for that part of ourselves. I like the way you explain that. I think of how in medicine, we use things like ultrasounds. This stuff is done through frequencies and waves. Mm-hmm. And then I compare that to using a singing bowl or some sort of sound that's creating these waves and frequencies. And so if these scientific, these medical devices can have those profound effects on our bodies, in my mind, it's the same thing. And they're just doing something different on a, on a deeper level through our cells, through our tissues. Is that yeah. kind of, does that make sense? Is that how yeah, you ever that, describe it? Okay. That's another aspect to it. Okay. That is part of it as well, which is why it doesn't work so well over speakers, you know, via Zoom. But if you're in the presence of these instruments, they're creating incredible vibrations that are going through your whole body. The way that I look at it now is that they're, they're helping arrange the water in your cells. They're mm-hmm. helping to structure the water in a healthy way. And you see that with water that's living, like in streams, there's a sound. When you go by a river, there's a huge amount of sound being produced by the water running up up against the rocks. And it's not just the motion of the water flowing that creates structure within that water. It's also the sound itself. A lot of the harmonics practices are actually imitating that sound of nature and water. And so there's something to that as well within ourselves. And then, of course, there's aspects to it that we have no way of measuring right now. But, but people feel better and there's, there, there are measurable effects on health. People that do this regularly have seen you know, resolution of symptoms and disease. So whether that's coming from the psychological healing that's filtering into the body or it's actually physically from the sound, I don't know that we have a way of knowing it right now but Mm -hmm. there's something there. If someone was at home and tried listening to some sound healing tracks or something, you know, on YouTube, I looked up frequencies and listened to that. Uh, You're saying it's not going to have the same effect on the body, but would it to the mind or what would that experience be like for someone who just wanted to try it at home? If they listen with headphones, a good pair of headphones, it might have a good effect on taking them into the same places of consciousness but they're not going to have the exposure to the physical sound waves that resonate Mm -hmm. and vibrate through the whole body. Okay. So that's the missing piece. And and that's why for a long time, I was resistant on doing anything remotely regarding sound. I just thought, you know, via zoom, you know, there's nothing to be gained there. And I'm now of the opinion that there's probably something to be gained by listening at home, but you're missing 50% or more. Well, we're coming to an end here. So if you could give the listeners just one tip for them that maybe they can take action on this week that will help them live a healthier, happier life, what would you say for them to do? I would really encourage people to just start to listen to their bodies more, not listen so much to what they think they need, but listen to the cravings of the body. Our body is telling us what we need. You know, whether we're craving salty foods or whether we're, we're thirsty or whether certain foods are like, no, I don't want that. There's a lot to be learned by listening to what our body is, is wanting and not wanting. And I, w- I usually encourage people to really spend time there and try to figure that out. And it's not always intuitive as to what the body is, is wanting and not wanting or why it's wanting that. But usually there's a mineral involved, I've found. And Mm -hmm. so that might be good insights into what people are missing. Right. Like if you crave dark chocolate all the time, maybe it's a magnesium and copper deficiency. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yes. And if you're thirsty all the time, you're probably magnesium deficient. 
Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Okay. That's a really good tip. I mean, thank you so much for being on the show. Do you want to share where people can find you if they want to work with you or just kind of read more about your information? Yeah. I'm on Instagram at mineral shaman and my website for this type of thing. Health, health consulting coaching is mineralshaman.com. Okay. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes. And then if you live in Arizona, you have, you do sound baths and things like that still, right? Yeah, absolutely. In Arizona, I'm doing sound trainings twice a year. If people want to learn how to deliver sound healings, like we were talking about, mm-hmm. or just come experience them, I do them fairly regularly throughout the, the Phoenix area. And people can find that on Instagram as well. It's my other account, which is at Hamid.jabbar. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And before I go, I do want to remind you that I am currently taking one-on-one clients from anywhere in the world. I work online with people all over and we do that by doing Zoom calls for our sessions and I ship out functional lab testing straight to your door. You do the testing in the comfort of your own home, ship it out, and then I get the results so that I can investigate what the root cause is to your health problems. I've helped many people put their autoimmune diseases into remission like alopecia areata, EOE, rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's, and I've helped so many people struggling with mystery symptoms get their health back. And a lot of times I'll find things like hidden gut infections like Giardia, H. pylori, maybe we find some candida overgrowth, mold has been coming up a lot on people's tests recently, nutrient deficiencies, hormone imbalances. These are all things that are triggers for your symptoms and diseases that conventional doctors are missing. So if you're ready to actually figure out why you're struggling with an autoimmune disease, or if you don't even know what you have yet, you just have these mystery symptoms that you can't seem to get a diagnosis for, and you want to heal your body through diet and lifestyle changes, then book a free health consultation with me so that we can get your health back on track. You can go to the show notes and book the call there, or you can go to naturalhealthrising.com, or you can even head over to my Instagram and you can chat with me, go into my DMs, send me a message. I reply to everybody in there. You can sign up for a consultation on my Instagram as well. So if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to leave a comment, rating, or share it with a friend who needs to hear this information. Comments and ratings really help this show so that more people will listen and I can continue to help people level up their health and entire life holistically. Thanks for listening and keep striving to become your healthiest, happiest self.